The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Katie Balls on Labour's plans for a future with or without Boris, Julie Bindle on the rise of lesbian divorce, and Douglas Murray on the hellish thought of having to bring your whole self to work. First up, Katie Balls. Boris's surprising saviour. Boris Johnson has a lot of people to thank for his survival in 10 Downing Street. But Keir Starmer should be the top of the list. The Labour leader whipped his MPs to side with the government when lockdown votes looked tricky. Labour even saved Johnson from a defeat in the Commons over vaccine passports. But Starmer's greatest service came last month, on a day that could have finished Johnson for good. Members of the 2019 crop of Tory MPs had met to discuss their problems with the Prime Minister. The scene was set for an old-fashioned Conservative regicide. But just as senior Tories began to tell journalists that a confidence vote was imminent, the Labour Party announced that Christian Wakeford, a Red Wall MP, had crossed the floor. The defection triggered the Tories' tribal instincts and they rallied behind their leader. The immediate threat to Johnson subsided. This moment seemed like another own goal from Starmer. Why blow a chance to dethrone a Tory Prime Minister? The answer is that, for now at least, a wounded Boris Johnson suits Labour better than a new leader would. It's a truism in politics that defections unite, says one Starmer ally, suggesting that Labour whips were all too aware that the move would have a rallying effect. The ideal scenario is Boris stays on and damages the Tory brand, and then whoever replaces him, eventually, is too tainted to appear fresh and new, as another senior Labour figure. The past few months have offered plenty of evidence that a beleaguered Johnson is good news for Labour. Since things started to go wrong for the Prime Minister, first because of his mishandling of the Owen Paterson affair and then Partygate, Starmer's prospects have improved. Even now, as Johnson shows small signs of a comeback, Labour has an average poll lead of six points. Starmer has always said his party has had a mountain to climb since the 2019 election defeat. Even the current polling has been met with scepticism. It's not just an institutional reluctance to trust good news. Tony Blair only believed his 1997 election victory would happen at the very last minute and was planning to enter coalition talks with the Liberal Democrats. One Labour figure privy to internal focus groups warns that although the party is ahead in the polls, Starmer is not popular with the public. People are anti-Tory and they're tired, but they don't have much affection for us. After the Jeremy Corbyn years, Labour still has reputational repairs to do, especially regarding foreign affairs. Voters have become used to seeing Labour on the wrong side of almost any dispute. During the Salisbury poisonings, when Corbyn and his team refused to condemn Russia and suggested that a sample of the Novichok used should be sent to Moscow so that the Kremlin could say whether it was theirs or not, Starmer, then shadow Brexit secretary, broke rank and publicly backed Theresa May's response in a television interview. Starmer is using the Ukraine situation this week to emphasise Labour's return to the centre. He recently reaffirmed Labour's support for NATO and distanced himself and his party from the Stop the War coalition that Corbyn so keenly advocated. Starmer described the group's members as not benign voices for peace. We don't expect to get lots of new voters because of Ukraine, but it shows there is a Labour leader who is decent and respectable, says one Starmer ally. 
Corbyn could soon be out of the Commons. The former leader still has a whip suspended for saying that the scale of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party during his leadership was exaggerated for political reasons. Until he apologises unequivocally, the whip won't be reinstated. That logically means there'll be a new candidate for Islington North at the next election. The bigger question is who the Tory leader will be for that election, whether things really could be worse for Labour if it wasn't Johnson. It's still not clear if Starmer knows how to attack Johnson successfully. If the Prime Minister is now mortally wounded, it wasn't thanks to any onslaught of the opposition, but because of his own self-inflicted injuries. Johnson was once the opponent Labour strategists feared the most. Now no one is sure who they fear. One senior party figure likens Rishi Sunak to David Miliband for the modern age. He wants to be PM but doesn't want to stick the knife in, says one advisor. Labour believes Sunak could be attacked as a high-tax, low-growth Tory. The national insurance hike has long been viewed as a gift for Labour. People only liked him because he spent money, says one shadow minister of the pandemic support packages, and he stopped doing that. Members of the shadow cabinet take the view that part of what made Johnson such a tricky opponent to attack, particularly in 2019, was his commitment to higher spending and net zero. If a candidate such as Sunak or Liz Truss were to come along, who they could try to depict as pro-austerity and less committed to the green agenda, Labour would be able to fight an election on more traditional party lines. This is why Jeremy Hunt, who many believe would keep net zero a key priority if he became the next Tory leader, is viewed by some Labour MPs as the trickiest potential opponent. However, other advisers believe it would be a simple fight. In the past two elections, the Tories have succeeded in making it harder for Labour to attack them on the NHS. If the longest ever serving health secretary were to succeed Johnson, old arguments would return, particularly if hospital waiting lists still hadn't started to go down. Starman's team believe they can keep making gains in the polls as the cost of living crisis starts to take effect. But whether Starman can become an electoral draw in his own right, as opposed to relying on the Tories' misfortunes, is yet to be proved. That was Katie Balls. Next, it's Julie Bindle. Untying the knot. The rise of lesbian divorce. At one stage, I had a special tray in my study, into which to throw all of my lesbian wedding invitations. This was around December 2005, when lesbian and gay couples could first sign a civil partnership agreement, providing legal protection, including a basis for next of kin and inheritance rights. Although the law did not allow actual marriage between same-sex couples, many lesbians went full throttle with their weddings. It didn't seem to matter that the only requirement to enter a civil partnership was a trip to the town hall and a signature in front of a couple of witnesses. When I signed my own, my partner and I turned up in our usual scruffs in between work commitments. But lots of lesbians wanted the big day. They wanted ceremonies involving wedding dresses, bridesmaids and page boys, flowers, cakes and bunting, followed by sit-down dinners with drunken speeches. There would be honeymoons and, increasingly, with the help of an IVF clinic or sperm donor, babies. Since 2014, lesbians and gays can marry or convert a civil partnership into a marriage. A civil partnership can be ended simply by applying to a court for a dissolution order and proving the relationship has irretrievably broken down. Divorce is more complicated. But what's interesting is that divorce rates among lesbian couples are rising. In fact, 
far more lesbian couples are filing for divorce than gay men. By 2020, 2,900 same-sex couples, of whom nearly three quarters were female, had divorced. The same trend can be seen in the Netherlands, the first country to allow same-sex marriage. In the 10 years from 2005, 15% of gay civil partnerships failed, compared with 30% of lesbian ones. The latest research showed that overall, women are much more likely to instigate divorce proceedings than men, with two-thirds of divorces initiated by women in the past 10 years. Many women are prevented from filing for divorce by the fear of violence that often follows separation from an abusive and controlling man, or by worries about who will manage the burden of childcare. This is not to imply that all lesbian relationships are beacons of equality, but it is not difficult to see how these factors may contribute to the more frequent divorces between lesbians than heterosexual couples. We wanted something that had been denied to us for so long, says Sarah Bishops, a lesbian in her 40s who divorced her wife Mary, whose name has been changed, last year after seven years of marriage. I had been with Mary for a year when it became legal to marry, and we just thought, why the hell not? It felt, for me, who had been out and proud for 20 years, the best validation of our love and a sign of a proper equality with straight people, she says. But, says Bishops, once the excitement of being married had died down, so did the romance. Looking back, I think we wanted the whole marriage and public acknowledgement thing more than a committed relationship, she said. Let's face it, that is the reason why many heterosexual women marry too. Natalie Drew ran the first fertility clinic in the UK aimed at same-sex couples. Drew has discovered that about a third of the 586 lesbian couples she helped to have babies between 2011 and 2015 have split up. Drew divorced her own wife in 2019. In her view, the breakdown of so many lesbian relationships is because women rush into a traditional married life that may not work for them. I do believe that it's because women commit early on instead of having a long courtship. They have high expectations about what the marriage should be rather than getting to know each other and taking it steady, says Drew. There is an old joke that backs up her view. What does a lesbian bring on her first date? Her cat and a removal van. Jenny and Lucy, whose names have been changed, have been together for 10 years and have two children. The couple married in 2017 and divorced in September last year. I was pregnant when we married, Jenny tells me, and a year after our daughter was born. It was Lucy's turn. Our son arrived in January 2020. But by then, the relationship was in trouble. It was nothing but domesticity and baby talk. We had no sex life, and romance was reduced to Netflix on the rare occasion when both kids were asleep at the same time. When they separated, the couple each took their own birth child, which has led to complicated arrangements to allow the siblings to stay connected. They are brother and sister, says Jenny. But the idea of one of us having custody of both, 
or doing that thing of one week on, one week off is a nightmare. So for now, we're muddling through. I have seen several lesbian friends and colleagues divorce and remain amicable, if not friendly, in particular if they have children. But lesbians tend not to stay in unhappy relationships till death us do part, in large part because we are not constrained by the same pressures as straight women. For lesbians who came of age at a time before it was possible to marry, we had no reason to remain together once the relationship had run its course. In my view, same-sex couples were only invited to the marriage malarkey because it was a failing institution, with divorce rates rising among heterosexual couples. Marriage was marketed to same-sex couples as a way of ensuring that we were tamed out of our semi-feral existence of living over the brush and having too much fun and freedom. Lesbians and gay men used to be virulently opposed to marriage. In 1971, Jill Tweedy wrote, Gay Lib does not plead for the right of homosexuals to marry. Gay Lib questions marriage. During the eight years since lesbians were afforded the legal right to marry, few of us seem to have raised objections to the institution of marriage itself. But it is a patriarchal institution that has curtailed women's freedom for centuries. Divorcing lesbians may have come to this realisation. I am minded of the late Paula Ettelbrick, a US-based lesbian and human rights lawyer who, in her 1989 paper, Since When Is Marriage a Path to Liberation?, came up with one of the greatest lines about state interference in relationships. Marriage is a great institution, if you like living in institutions. That was Julie Bindle. And finally, Douglas Murray. Work is no place for your whole self. One of the few things I have learned in this life is that Dante Alighieri was wrong. In the Inferno portion of the Divine Comedy, the only part most people read, the great Florentine poet describes hell as having just nine circles. Whereas whenever I survey matters, it has always seemed to me that this figure is on the low side. In fact, I would go further. I would say that if you look down, there is always a circle below every circle. The other week, I wrote about our nation's ambassador to the Ukraine, a woman who seems to think that expressions of vulnerability and not quite coping are somehow helpful public attributes in her job. What I did not get into is that Melinda Simmons is not alone. She is part of a movement, a way of approaching the working world which constitutes a whole new circle of hell. It can be summed up in a phrase now working itself outwards from every HR department in the land. That phrase is, bring your whole self to work. If you have not come across this phrase, then you are among the blessed, perhaps due in time to be guided by Beatrice to the heavenly heights. For those of us who must perforce keep looking downwards, we have watched this wretched phrase spread everywhere. It is not just pushed out by HR departments, but is the subject of numerous books, TED Talks and more. 
It seems to have emerged as an invitation for people who are members of minority groups to not hide their identities in the office place. So, if you are a gay, you shouldn't have to hide the fact at the office. If you are a member of some indigenous community, apart from the Anglo-Saxons, naturally, you should ensure that you do not try to pass as somebody else. In some ways, this idea is appealing, as all appalling ideas are. Bring your whole self to work is also intended to destigmatize mental illness. Last year, the CIA issued a recruitment video in which the agent they highlighted as their ideal recruiter was a woman of colour who said, I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalised anxiety disorder. I am intersectional. She went on to describe her refusal to bow to the patriarchy. Instead, she said she would intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. In its way, this is a fine example of bringing your whole self to work, for the lady in question is clearly a narcissistic sociopath, a type I would rather not know exists in the CIA, and certainly would rather the CIA did not imagine was their ideal poster girl for a recruitment campaign. My first thought when I saw the video was that I hoped this lady wasn't in charge of America's drone programme. But I am not in favour of bringing your whole self to work. As ideas go, I think it is demented. Yet, like all demented ideas, it has of course caught on with our own civil service here in the UK. In the autumn of last year, the civil service was busy celebrating National Inclusion Week. Among the events in that joyous, ancient week of celebration was an event called Being Authentic in the Workplace. The event was chaired by Sir Simon Gass of the Cabinet Office, who is chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee and the Prime Minister's Special Representative for the Afghan Transition. A few weeks earlier, Sir Simon had helped to oversee the successful transition of Afghanistan back into the hands of the Taliban. The principal guest speaker on that occasion was Dr Ellen Hendrickson of Boston University, author of a book called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Other speakers included Helen Lederer, Director of Corporate Services at Number 10 and Cabinet Office Inclusion Champion. Also one Nick Pett, the Ministry of Defence's LGBT plus champion who is also the head of the MOD's Diversity and Inclusion Unit and an MOD Race Network ally. Circle after circle, I tell you. I am told by some of those present that this fatuous occasion started with Sir Simon Gass doing the now compulsory white man struggle session, lamenting his whiteness, maleness, lack of intersectionality and so on. But the panel continued under the rubric that bringing your whole self to work is believed to lead to greater staff retention, productivity, happiness and well-being. In my own view... Nothing that Dante came up with seven centuries ago 
could possibly be torture enough for the people who would put anyone, let alone our public servants, through such sessions. If I could watch them boil for all eternity, I would. I would watch Cerberus rip at their limbs with relish. I would ogle at them in the frozen lake, having their minute, indoctrinated brains being eaten out forever. The point is, I wouldn't be pulling at Virgil's cloak like nice Mr Dante. I would be asking Virgil if we couldn't hang around a little while longer, kick up our feet, enjoy ourselves. Because here is an idea. How about not bringing your whole self to work? How about Sir Simon Gass, for instance, only brings that bit that knows a lot about Afghanistan? If that bit is there. Ditto for everyone else. If you have a fondness for any particular sexual or racial politics, leave that at the door too. Bring only the bit that's really good at your job. And if you have anxiety that you can't do your job, do another job or become so good at your job that such anxiety eventually disappears. I say this from a point of considerable self-interest, of course. If my colleagues at The Spectator insisted on us bringing our whole selves to work, the magazine would soon be printing its last issue. My colleagues would hate me to bring my whole self into the office. For instance, I do not always display patience and forbearance. On occasion, I take undue delight in the misfortune of others. These are among my better traits. And I won't even mention what would happen if Rod brought his whole self to work. Or Taki. People should dwell on this. It could help us see an end to it. That was Douglas Murray. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.